Back in the 1800s, if you got sick, it was quite difficult to access care, and quite sensibly, doctors were encouraged to make house calls. This became common practice for well over 100 years, until it had all but died out by the early 1980s. And yet, in the 2020s, a more decentralised healthcare system, less reliant on hospitals and clinics, seems to represent a better solution. Healthcare is coming back to the home. Accelerated by the pandemic and increasingly efficient and more user-friendly technologies, levels of care and treatment which were once only achievable in hospitals and clinics can now be done from the comfort of your sofa. But what caused this change? What unique opportunities does it bring for improving world health? Is it the right strategy? Are there risks involved when we ask patients to administer care onto themselves? To find out, join me, Matt Millington, as we plug in to Invent Health, a podcast brought to you by technology and product development company, TTP. Today we ask, is healthcare coming home? Hello and welcome to Invent Health, a podcast about the future of health and technology. In today's episode, we're taking you out of the hospital and into the place where you may well be sitting right now, your very own home. We've all spent a lot of time, probably too much time, stuck at home over the last few years, and this has had a profound effect on a vast number of industries, from food delivery to online shopping, even wine tasting. Now that we're all so much more used to being able to connect instantly with whoever we want at the touch of a button, industries have had to adapt to bring the same services we used to head out of the door for into our homes. The same is true of healthcare. The pandemic accelerated a shift which was already in motion in global healthcare, moving things out of the clinic and into the hands of patients themselves. From virtual visits to the doctor, to monitoring your own health and logging it in various apps and health platforms. This change in the very nature of how we conceive of healthcare has crept in without most people thinking too much about it. But what happens when you make patients custodians of their own care, or when hospitals become solely for the critically ill? Does this all mean a further reliance on the notoriously unreliable Dr. Google? I wanted to dig deep into this to find out if the future does indeed involve us all fitting hospitals into our living rooms. So I got in touch with someone working to bring not just general appointments into the home, but one of the most complex forms of treatment, kidney dialysis. Clayton Poppy is the CTO of Dialyty. From their base in California, Dialyty is redefining home dialysis, enabling patients in kidney failure to undergo hemodialysis in their own home. With a background in engineering, Clayton's expertise in the field of home hemodialysis made him the perfect place to start to find out more about this new trend for global healthcare. I started off by asking him about the shift towards healthcare in the home. Has it been on the cards for some time or a post-pandemic phenomenon? So this is something we've we've heard a lot. This is uh, everybody's moving to a more decentralised healthcare system. Why do you think this is this is starting to happen at the moment? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of reasons why healthcare is moving home. One is, uh, especially in the U.S., this push for value-based care, which includes not only the you know kind of outcome side, uh, but also the cost side. Right. So we want to get 
a better outcome at a lower cost. Um, and we spend in the United States, especially a lot of money on healthcare, um, but not necessarily with results that would indicate um, we're getting our money's worth. So, you know, part of this push now for about value-based care is finding other ways of caring for people um, in a way that improves their quality of life while reducing the overall cost. So home is a great way to, to do that. Um, the infrastructure costs of home are, are nothing to the healthcare system, right? Um, so if we can put a patient at home and give them the care that they need, we can both improve their quality of life as well as uh, reduce the overall cost. So I think that's, that's one part. I would say, too, there's, there's also a push from the patient side to receive care that's more convenient for them. People are busy working, you know, moms and dads, dealing with sick children. Um, it's hard to have the time to go into a doctor's office. So if we can get that care elsewhere, if we can get that care at home, um, that's a big benefit um, for, for patients. So I think there's a couple of different things that are leading us to look more at home for treating people. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're having this conversation remotely and very comfortably um, over a, a video conference, but we've got very used to that in the last well, 18 months. Do you think, obviously, COVID has had a bit of a, um, an accelerating effect on this move into the home? I absolutely do. You know, I'm in the dialysis industry. Um, COVID has been really difficult because you have patients who are, you know, likely older and sicker otherwise. Uh, they're on dialysis and they have to interact with the healthcare system three times a week. Um, so they're coming into a place where there's other sick people um, so the, the risk of COVID infections is, is very high. Um, and they're, you know, the most susceptible to complications from getting COVID. So I think that that's a, a real problem. And, and being able to treat those patients at home would be a huge benefit for, for the patients, but also for the other people involved um, who are themselves uh, putting themselves in, in harm's way, potentially. COVID is something we'll be coming back to a few times in this episode. Because the pandemic has had a profound effect on where healthcare gets done and by what means. For Clayton, working out how to treat older people, often with comorbidities in a safe COVID-free environment, became of paramount importance. This is true for many areas of healthcare. When the pandemic struck, it was vital to work out how to move practices traditionally done in clinics into the home. The question was how? This is something that my friend Alex Gilbert, who works in the field of digital health, has been championing long before the pandemic struck. Alex now runs the Global Life Sciences Partnerships and Digital Medicine team at Humor, a UK company who produce applications that integrate health data from existing hospital databases, as well as patient wearables and other mobile devices. I asked him about the ways in which the pandemic has affected and indeed accelerated healthcare's move into the home. So I don't know about you, but over the last 18 months, maybe because, uh, well, I've had things to do like educating children and doing my <laughs> job, but our health has become uh, a very kind of important topic. Do you think the 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 recent pandemic is has been a, a driver of this trend that we're seeing of healthcare uh, moving into the home. 
I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think I'm one of the biggest blockers for healthcare at home actually, I think has been individual engagement. I think um, we've always kind of relied on the consumer to push forward the growth of an industry. And if you think about it, you know, they say it takes 30 days to form a habit, right? And we've just had what, you know, a year and a half of every single person globally thinking about their health every single day. You know, it's the first thing that you read about on the news. It's the first thing that you think about. Um, And as a result, you know, people are becoming more engaged in health and healthcare. And as a result, they're becoming more savvy to the ways in which healthcare is delivered. Beyond that, you know, the system has kind of been forced to think about what healthcare at home is and, you know, how it could work because, you know, they just can't deliver healthcare in the hospitals anymore because it's a risk or they couldn't at least for a period of time. You know, it's difficult to bring people in who are already at risk of potentially negative outcomes and then have them, you know, face a potential pandemic or, you know, getting a condition within the hospital walls, because ultimately that was probably the riskiest place you could be. So um, those two areas have kind of really driven, I think, the adoption of healthcare at home over the course of the past 18 months. I think for the for the benefit of the listeners, um, could you tell me a little bit about what humor does and also how you've uh, applied and adapted that to the, the pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, we're We're a very complex business, I always say. You know, I think the we're a very complex business doing very simple work. Um, We essentially initially started out as a remote patient monitoring business, so connecting patients to physicians outside of the hospital, which is still, you know, most of what we do and kind of working with local and international health systems on doing that. Through that, we started to expand into the life sciences space, so working with pharmaceutical and medical device companies, mostly doing kind of either patient support programs or more recently starting to really help decentralize trials, because that whole um, clinical trial space has also become much more at home focused now because, you know, they have to again. Um, And then there's been this whole emergence of population health initiatives. You know, we partnered with some really exciting names like the German Ministry of Health and NHSX to actually deliver, you know, COVID-19 virtual wards and help them set up COVID-19 virtual wards to, you know, keep patients safe at home and monitored at home without having to bring them into the hospital or potentially into the ICS. What did that look like? You know, from a, I guess, from a patient perspective, you, you easily said a, a COVID-19 virtual ward, but what is that? Yeah. So essentially what we did is we, depending on the country that we were operating in, but we were mostly setting up these, um, healthcare at home clinics where patients were utilizing the Huma app sometimes alongside some integrated devices. So things like, um, you know, devices measuring their blood rate oxygenation, measuring their blood pressure. um, And we were utilizing those to essentially have them receive the same level of monitoring that they would in a hospital, but, you know, from the comfort of their own beds almost. Um, And what it meant is that we actually managed to, in some cases, double the capacity of the clinicians. So if you were a doctor and you could previously look at 100 patients, utilizing humor, you were able to look at 200 patients. We also had a degree of kind of prioritization happening. So, you know, if people were putting in or receiving negative results, you know, if you saw the a change in their breathlessness or if you saw a change in um, their oxygenation rate or something along those lines, they'd be prioritized higher up on the list, which meant that, you know, the, the clinical teams knew that they should be reaching out to those patients. Um, one of the really interesting features, for example, that we developed during that um, piece of work was we enabled scene ticks in the app. So you could kind of see whether a physician has seen your data. And we had really positive feedback from patients on that because for them it meant, okay, I'm doing fine. My information has been seen by a clinician and I shouldn't be panicking right now, even though I don't necessarily feel 
amazing. The fact that somebody's seen my data and has not reached out and is, you know, has given them that peace of mind that, you know, they're exactly where they should be and they're recovering as they should be. Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was really kind of, you know, a, a very quick launch and a very kind of quick implementation, but one that was ultimately, I think, quite valuable for the health systems that used it. So, you know, did human know that there was a pandemic coming and you would be perfectly positioned <laughs> as a business to, to help the world or, or has the healthcare been kind of moving in the direction of the home before that? I mean, um, as I think it would sound nefarious to say that we knew the pandemic was coming before before <laughs> yeah, it was, I'm but I'd cheeky. say that <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, <laughs> but no, we um, we definitely anticipated a big shift, and you know, I think that we'd anticipated a shift for a while. Um, that's ultimately why we started doing what we're doing now, and we'd always seen kind of healthcare moving in the direction of being very individual focused rather than necessarily system focused, which comes with that kind of element of healthcare at home, right? Um, <clears throat> what we didn't anticipate is that it was going to accelerate so quickly. I think the work that we're doing has just been massively accelerated by the pandemic. Um, so, you know, what would have taken us probably five to 10 years has now taken us a year to achieve. Um, and it's really shifted mindsets and changed the way the industry is is managed. And, you know, it's it's so evident to see even just from the way in which investments in digital health have skyrocketed. You know, I think Businesses are growing at an unprecedented rate. People are recognizing um, organizations in this space. There are digital health businesses becoming household names just by virtue of, you know, becoming um, relevant and necessary. So I think, you know, that's that's really changed the way in which we think about the future of digital health. You know, I think where we were before the pandemic and where we are now is very different. And the ambitions of the organization have grown and accelerated quite significantly as a result. Mm. I mean, I, I think even before the pandemic, we we certainly thought that healthcare was coming up to that crest on the on the sort of Gartner hype curve type thing. Yeah. Um, but it seems to have reached a whole new level. Do you think this is a um, you know a, a kind of high point before it all falls down again, or do you think this is just the new normal? I think I think it's the new normal. You know, I've spent the past year and a half talking to a lot of different clinicians and figuring out you know, how they're operating at the moment, how they're going to be working in the future. And most of them think that it's the new normal. And ultimately, you know, if the physicians and the clinical teams think that this is the new normal, then that's what it's going to be. You know, I think I was speaking to an orthopedic surgeon the other day and they said, you know, we used to do all of our visits in person. And actually we found out by the pandemic that it was superfluous. You know, we, our patients may be in their seventies, but they've just spent the past year and a half talking to their children and grandchildren over video visits and, you know, really becoming very digital savvy. And as a result, he says, you know, ultimately only really want to see the patient probably on the operating table and then maybe one's post-op and the rest we can do completely virtually. You know, we can do that pre-assessment virtually. We can follow up virtually. The patient doesn't have to come in, find a parking space, wait for, you know, two hours to get seen. They can just do it within 15 minutes and the efficiencies are there. You know, I think the, the really big positive is that the efficiencies in delivering healthcare at home and digital health were always kind of nebulous. The past year and a half has really meant that businesses have had to prove what those efficiencies are and hospitals have had to actually test those efficiencies out because, you know, they never would have um, implemented, you know, remote healthcare for their entire patient cohort just, you know, off a whim. They needed to kind of actually be almost forced to do it as they have been. Um, and it's meant that they really now recognize what the value there is. 
That idea of value is really important here. Because before the pandemic, the idea that we could derive a better value of healthcare by moving it into the home seemed far off. People were used to speaking to their doctor face to face, but COVID dramatically changed that. This new emphasis on the added value of healthcare in the home was both a change and an opportunity for Clayton and his home dialysis company, Dialyty. I wanted to learn more about the specifics of what dialysis entails and what the challenges of moving something so intrusive into the home might be. People hear the term dialysis, but they don't necessarily know what that actually entails. Could you give me a little quick rundown of what that actually is? You bet. So if you're on dialysis, it means that you've hit um, end-stage renal disease. Um, so there are different stages of kidney disease um, that go by these stage names. Um, and stage five kidney disease um, is the end stage, um, which means that you basically don't have any kidney function or you don't have enough kidney function for your kidneys to cleanse your blood of the toxins and, and pull excess fluid from the blood. So you're not able to make urine um, and you need a machine to, to accomplish what the, the kidney would otherwise do if you were healthy. So for hemodialysis, which is where Dialyty is making a device, with hemodialysis, we take the blood out of the patient um, and that goes through a filter where we filter out the toxins and we pull excess fluid from the blood and then we return that cleansed blood back into the patient. Um, so it's a very invasive type procedure that's done three times a week generally. Um, it's a pretty big deal for, for the patients. Um, it definitely disrupts their life. Um, they need to be on this machine for approximately four hours of treatment three times a week. Um, so that's a pretty big commitment on their part. Um, but without this, this therapy, um, they would die. They would die, yeah. There, there, is, there is another type of dialysis, isn't there? That, that's right. So the other type of dialysis is peritoneal dialysis. And there, instead of taking the blood out of the body, uh, we pump a fluid uh, of dialysate into the abdomen of the patient. Um, and there's a transfer um, of those uremic toxins through the walls um, that, that line the um, intestines. Um, and so there's um, this transfer between blood from the intestines into this fluid and then that fluid gets pumped out and, and replaced every so often, which for some patients is um, a, a benefit. They can do that while they sleep, um, but, but it does involve you know, carrying a bunch of extra fluid in your, in your stomach um, as, you, as you change this out over, over the day. And, and there are some reasons why peritoneal dialysis is a better fit for, for patients uh, versus hemodialysis. Mm-hmm. And I've seen the difficulty of moving things like peritoneal dialysis into the home, the sheer volume of the fluid, the dialysate, as it called. Um, I've seen photos of people literally having to put curtains across their living room to store this sheer volume of fluid that they, they have to go through. So taking some of these um, therapies out of the clinical environment and putting them into the home um, is not easy. Can you, can you tell me about what Dialyty is, is doing um, in hemodialysis and how you're, how you're making that transition happen? Sure. So, you know, when, when we think about 
dialysis and what dialysis patients need, um, we look at it from a quality of care perspective. So we talked a little bit earlier about value-based care, and, and that's something that you know, we think is really important. Um, and so that means both giving the patients a better outcome, um, giving them a higher quality of life, um, as well as reducing the overall cost of care. There's a lot of reasons why doing dialysis at home is really great for patients. Um, if you can imagine, you know, you're a busy person, um, dialysis takes up a lot of time. If you can fit that time in when it's convenient um, and you don't have to travel to a dialysis clinic, um, there's a lot of benefits just in being able to schedule the dialysis treatments when, when you're ready. The other thing is if you have this dedicated machine at home, you can be a little bit more flexible with how and when you get your treatments. And so, you know, perhaps you're not feeling well today. Um, we might, you know, increase the duration of a dialysis treatment, or you know you have a big event tomorrow. We're gonna make sure that you've timed your, or you're gonna make sure that you've timed your dialysis treatment so you feel the best when you're ready for, for this um, event. Patients who direct their own care um, have better outcomes. They care the most about their health, and so they tend to be more diligent about doing the things that um, will lead to a better outcome, cleaning their blood access, doing the little things that are really important to preventing infection and, and having a better, better treatment outcome. So when, when we look at what is important from a patient perspective, it's, it's really about uh, giving them the ability to control their treatments and, and do them um, in a comfortable setting. So for us, you know, we've designed a machine around providing that care at home for, um, uh, for a patient. And so there, there's a lot of then um, things that, that kind of flow from that, that that we've chosen from a design perspective to support that. So you mentioned the supplies, right? The supplies can be a really big impediment to doing home dialysis. Having pre-made bags of, of fluid is, is a challenge to store. So we take tap water uh, from the patient's home, uh, we purify that, and then we add concentrated chemicals, chemicals to that to create our dialysate solution so that we can reduce the overall supplies that are needed um, to, to conduct dialysis. And, and we've also designed the machine to be easy enough for a patient to use. So in a, in a dialysis clinic, the machines are run by nurses or technicians who are obviously trained to, to do that. Um, and the patient is kind of a passive participant. They sit in a chair and dialysis happens to them. They're, they're not participating in, in that. Whereas at home, they're the ones participating. Um, and, and so if we're gonna put that burden on them to be able to run the machine, we have to make it easy for them to, to do so. And so what, what we and others are trying to do is really create these devices that are gonna be appropriate for the home and allow patients to do treatment at home. The, the design problems that you've solved, okay, some, some blockers, but you've used design um, to work your way through that. What about things like um, perceived risk? What, what other blockers have you come up against beyond just sort of solving the, the design problems? Yeah, I, I think that the, the risk, or, or as you phrased it, the perceived risk, which I think is more kind of appropriate, is definitely a big barrier, right? The 
patients at home are, are now the operators of the machine as well as the, the patients of the therapy. And, you know, for a lot of people, there's this concern that they're, they're going to make a mistake and, and that mistake could, could lead to an adverse outcome. There's a concern that the needles that take the blood um, out of the patient and put it back in might become dislodged during treatment. Um, and so you can imagine if, if one of those needles came out and now you're pumping half a liter a minute of blood, um, that that blood could end up on the floor instead of back wow. in your body, right? And that's, yeah. that's a that's big a concern and, and risk, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that there's, you know, a bunch of different ways that, that we address that. Obviously, having safety measures that detect when these things occur is important so that we can stop treatment and prevent that half a liter a minute of blood from, from being pumped on the, on the floor. Um, but, but I think kind of reducing these barriers is, is really, you know, part of that, making the machine usable, non-threatening, and, and something where people feel like, you know, they, they, can, they can do this. Designing products that are appropriate for use in the home, whether they're digital like those of Humor or more physical like Clayton's at Dialyty, is one of the most important considerations. Not least when it's the end user, the patient, who's going to need to be able to use it safely and easily. Another key thing which moving healthcare into the home relies on is being able to generate good quality patient data. Data is the other vital element that digitally enabled healthcare in the home represents. Having patients monitoring things themselves saves time and manpower for an already stretched healthcare service. But it also presents some big challenges. In hospitals or clinics, you know the data you're getting is relatively reliable, usually taken by trained physicians. But how do healthcare practitioners know that they're getting the correct results when patients themselves are doing the monitoring? It's something that Clayton has been working a lot on with Dialyty. The data opportunity is obviously very clear, but what are what are the some of some of the issues that you that you face in in enabling that opportunity? So I'm thinking, where does the data go? How do you share it? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that the first challenge is just getting the data out of the machine um, because we're going to be in patients' homes. You know, what kind of infrastructure they have is really important important and crucial for us to be able to get data off the machine. Um, and then once we get it off the machine, where does it go? Um, and, and how do we give other people access to it? Of course, um, you know, some of the data is potentially sensitive from a, you know, HIPAA perspective. We, we want to be out of the um, loop when it comes to who this patient is. Um, so we don't want to know personal details about each patient, uh, but we want to be able to gather data from each treatment and, and give it to the dialysis provider and, and let them associate that with, with a sp specific patient. So in order for us to do that, we have to create um, a portal. We've done that in the cloud where the data goes up into the cloud and then we tie that data to the provider uh, so that they can associate that with, with patients. Um, and understand then you know what's going on with each with each treatment um, but there's a lot of challenges there because now we have to not only 
get the data from the machine through the patient's infrastructure, but we have to um, coordinate with the dialysis providers um, to integrate our information with, with theirs or, or, or let them uh, get our information in a way that's helpful for them. So it takes a lot of coordination um, to, to kind of knit all of that data together. The new data sets that become available from more home-based healthcare solutions represents a real opportunity for R&D into finding things like new biomarkers and providing more personalized or precision healthcare. It's something that Alex and Huma are pioneering, so I asked him how they actually go about collecting data and ensuring effective monitoring and adherence from patients. How did you actually collect data? Are you relying on patient reported outcomes? You know, are they are they having to manually input while they're ill, or is there like a suite of wearables, uh, you know, like a, a Fitbit or a, or a something? So we did both. You know, for some we had um, patients kind of using integrated devices that were then automatically capturing data. In some cases, we had patients using devices that weren't connected to the individual's phone that were just kind of operating separately and they were inputting the information. And then in some cases, it was just self-reported information from the patients. Um, The thing that was really amazing about all of that is that actually the adherence rates were super, super high. So, And we've actually seen a rise in digital health adherence rates across all of the programs that we're doing because of that thing that I was saying about people being more conscious of their health and healthcare. So the adherence rates to the COVID-19 programs was like over 90%, I think even over 95%. um, Adherence to the- That's really high. Yeah, like really, really high. I mean, in digital health, you're usually expecting anywhere between 50 and 60. Um, Maybe in some cases, you know, 70 and 80, if you're talking about a rare condition. Um, So to see those adherence rates be that high was actually really incredible. But we're doing in parallel a diabetes program um, and- that is a cohort, it's type 2 diabetic cohort, that is a cohort that has notoriously had relatively low engagement rates to date. Um, even that program had 80% adherence during COVID, um, which is, again, spectacularly high, g- given what we previously thought was the normal or the norm. So yeah, that, that's actually what was quite amazing is people were reporting their data, people were engaging, people were seeing it as relevant. Because for the first time, I think a lot of them really saw the importance also, the clinical team saw the importance. You know, the, the clinician and the nurse and the hospital saw why the solution was so important and saw that it's something that they had to have rather than necessarily something that's a nice to have. And that trickles down into the patient using it, right? Because if your doctor or your physician is saying, hey, this it's really important that you use this because otherwise I'm not going to be able to treat you or I'm not going to be able to treat you properly, um, it feeds into that engagement quite strongly. Yeah. So there's a number of things going on there that you think led to that perfect storm of, of 90% engagement, which which is incredible. Um, do you think there is an element of people becoming more comfortable with these types of technologies um, that's also kind of contributing to that increased uh, adherence? Yeah, I think there's definitely a, a degree of comfortability. I think the, um, the probably the biggest change has been in people over the age of 60, Um, I think there was always kind of a question mark, given the fact that, you know, those are more often than not our most impacted communities in healthcare. How are we going to kind of make sure that those communities can participate in digital health if they aren't, you know, as digitally savvy as somebody who is in their 20s, 30s or 40s? Um, What happened during the pandemic is you had these people continuously becoming more and more digital because they had to, you know, you kind of had to, if you wanted to talk to your grandchild, you had to figure out how to use 
Skype or Zoom or, you know, something along those lines. You participated in a Zoom, you know, quiz with the rest of your family. You, you know, you became a lot more digitally savvy. And I think that really prompted a change in kind of how those cohorts are engaging with digital health tools and their comfort levels. Interestingly, those have always been the most engaged when they do know how to use the technology. So people in their 60s and 70s or 80s even, you know, have always been the most adherent because they they rec- when you tell them to do something, they do it. They don't suffer from that kind of digital fatigue that maybe a lot of us, um, a lot of other people do. You know, people who are younger, we have tons of apps. You know, you have an app for your cabs, you have an app for ordering food, you have an app for messaging, social media. There's so many kind of different applications that you kind of suffer from digital fatigue. You know, it's it's another digital app to add on top of the pile. Um, and previously, I think they didn't understand the relevance of it actually being for your health and for your healthcare. I think they saw it as just another app. The shift with them has been they've recognized that, okay, this isn't just another app. This is actually one that's quite relevant and important to me feeling better and feeling good. So as a result, you know, they, they, that, that's prompted their engagement. So it's been kind of, you know, there's been um, two kind of major changes there that I think have led to improved engagement and changing the way in which people engage and trust these solutions. Yeah, absolutely. Disease management platforms have very low uptake and fairly low adherence. But I'm wondering whether that is just because, you know, that our awareness of our health is not uh, as acute back then as it is now. And I'm only talking two years ago, really. But also just the sheer proliferation of digital products in front of our faces. Um, What do you think is sort of to be done about that because that's not going to go away. Um, and yet our healthcare is is very important. Do you think there's going to be more kind of remote um, monitoring and less, you know, us sort of having to directly engage in a screen and input data? Um, what, what's the movement there at Humor? I mean, you know, I think that um, there's a movement towards your um, physician or your doctor being the manager of your health to a more democratized approach where you as an individual are the manager of your health and your doctor is there or, you know, your clinical team is there as experts that can come in at certain points and then help you navigate in certain directions. And I think, you know, that movement goes in line with the fact that we, every health system globally is becoming overburdened. There is a, the ratio of doctors to patients is becoming worse and worse as populations rise. Um, And as a result, people need to be, you know, more empowered to actually kind of understand what's going on, live and lead healthier lives and make healthier choices. Because otherwise we just, you know, we end up with another pandemic, you know, whatever that may be um, of, you know, people who can't access care because there just isn't enough care to go around. So there's definitely been a move towards people being in control. Plus, you know, it goes in line with the information revolution. Access to information has never been at the level that it is now. And I'm not saying, you know, that Dr. Google is necessarily the most reliable doctor on in the hospital, but they do allow you, you know, it does allow you to give an initial um, idea into what you're facing. And especially when you already have a diagnosis, it allows you to both better understand that diagnosis as well as potentially even connect with other people who have that diagnosis. Um, so there's a there's more of a precedent, actually, I think, in, in history for people ha- managing their own care and having their care managed at home than there is in these kind of super organized systems that we have now. Now, I think there's there's benefits to both, really. And, you know, it's about kind of connecting both. I don't think that there will ever be a replacement for a physician. And I don't think I think that any business in digital health that is kind of aimed at fully replacing the physician and, you know, allowing, you know, an A.I., 
I don't know what they want to call it, AI robot to like fully manage the way in which your care is delivered and, you know, um, delivered and understood. I don't think that that's the future that we're headed to. I think it's around changing the way in which we interact with healthcare. So we need to get to a point where your doctor is doing what doctors do best, which is making decisions based off of information that is already collected rather than collecting information. Your comment a few minutes ago was we're moving to a world where we're more in charge of our own health. We own uh, and take charge of our healthcare. Obviously, information about our personal healthcare is very, very valuable. Um, at the moment, this data is, well, nobody really knows where it is. But if you're a patient, you don't necessarily know where your, where your data lives. Um, there are electronic health records um, all over the place, electronic medical records, and they're not necessarily connected. What needs to be done to enable that future where I actually have control of my healthcare uh, when it comes to data? Yeah. I mean, there needs to be a democratization of the health record. I think we're kind of beyond the point, unfortunately, where we can standardize patient records across the entire global industry. Even in the NHS specifically, it's, you know, an incredibly difficult and actually, you know, it's incredibly difficult undertaking, but also, to be honest, a bit of a pet peeve, the fact that we have a national health system that doesn't have one standardized patient record and could then benefit from the insights, I think is a bit of a miss. Um, you know, maybe one that will change, but I don't think likely in any time. I think what we have to do is we actually have to leapfrog that entire process and you have to put the patient record in the hands of the patient. And hopefully there we can have a bit more standardization where, you know, we have most people using one centralized version of a health record. National healthcare systems like the NHS are able to do some of the most groundbreaking research and cutting-edge treatments in the world. But their move into a fully digital and standardised system is often blocked by the sheer socio-economic and regulatory complexity of healthcare itself. But there are other drivers for change pushing against these barriers. Technological drivers. You might have seen a few weeks back that US surgeons said they have successfully given a pig's kidney to a person in a real transplant breakthrough. Suddenly a future where kidney transplant shortages could be a thing of the past. Yes, this could take decades to scale, but there are also other technologies like tissue regeneration aiming at restoring function to failing kidneys also on the far horizon. The point is, things are changing. Assuming the status quo will last is not a smart thing to do in the digital age. Clayton's work with Diality is embracing this broad opportunity landscape. So, it's 10 years in the future and you've you've worked very hard for the last 10 years and you've you've broken new ground with Diality. What does that future experience of of home dialysis look like for a patient and and for a payer I suppose or a clinician? Yeah, I think um you know, there's 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 certainly interesting things um, being done in, in laboratory about trying to regrow kidneys um, or grow pig kidneys and and transplant them. One of the one of the challenges um, in, in this industry is, you know, so one of the alternatives for patients um, instead of dialysis is to get a kidney transplant, um, but the reality is that there aren't enough kidneys right now. Um, for patients who are eligible and, and want a kidney to get one. Um, even if we are able to grow kidneys, 
a lot of dialysis patients wouldn't be healthy enough um, to get it to get a kidney or to have a transplant make sense. So, so I think that, you know, and, and that's beyond 10 years. So, so I think in, in, in the near future and probably even in the far future, making dialysis therapies better, um, I think is really important. Um, part of that on the therapy side is um, being able to provide that therapy in a way that, that continues to be convenient for patients. But I think what the, the future holds, what, what the next 10 years looks like is investing in understanding where the problems are gonna occur and, and intervening as early as possible so that we prevent them from happening. You know, a lot of, a lot of patients die on dialysis um, because they have an infection or you know they have some other uh, comorbidity uh, that doesn't get treated um, or they have some complication from dialysis and so you know we have done in, in this industry a good job of improving mortality rates um, but but still people on dialysis have a very low life expectancy and we can do a lot to to improve that and I think that's finding those issues early and preventing them from happening. So this hospital of the future in your living room, what's it going to look like? Will we all be welcoming a whole new class of devices into our homes? Or will the tech that we already have play the biggest role? What about doctors? Will they become the travelling physicians of the past, meeting us in our hermit home hospitals? Or will things become fully virtual? As we come towards the end of the episode, I want to find out exactly what this hospital in the home will look like. Well, Alex thinks that it won't look too different to how it does now. Do you think there will be the doctor coming to the home um, more than the, the patient having to go into the clinic these days when perhaps the clinic is actually more portable? Well, if you think about it, what is a virtual telemedicine visit than a doctor coming to your home? So that is you having a conversation with a doctor who is ultimately in some shape, in some nebulous form present in your home. And just the rise of virtual visits means that you're going to have more doctors present in homes. I don't think we'll see the return of the traveling physician who's kind of going door to door with a huge suitcase full of like all of the equipment, because I just don't think that they're going to want to do it, A, and B, I don't think that um, they're going to be able to make all of their visits in a day. What I can definitely see is similarly to the way that we set up this podcast today. You know, you and me are not in person with each other, but you guys sent over a mic. Um, we're having a virtual visit. You are ultimately in some shape or form present in my home, and you have all of the equipment to conduct this podcast without us being there in person. There's so many kind of testing facilities that you can send to an individual's home for them to do before a visit that you could potentially, you know, you could send a little pack out to your patient at home. They do all of the stuff in the pack before they have their visit. They report all of that information virtually to you. And that is ultimately what a home visit, you know, used to be. And I think we'll see we'll see that being, I think at least, kind of the the domain that we go into. And I think hospitals will be reserved for people who need continuous care, not even just monitored, but cared for. So that, you know, if they if something goes wrong and there's an acute situation, they can have an immediate response. Um, similarly to the way that, you know, we had ICUs. For, for COVID patients in the UK. I think that healthcare and hospitals will be reserved for those cases, whereas people who aren't in that kind of case, will, it will change. I've been doing a lot of work in orthopedics in the past two years, and there's this huge rise in day case surgeries. They're looking at, you know, how do we get a patient in on the day and then out on the same day? 
because they don't need to be in the hospital. They're just lying in bed. They're not, you know, nothing's going to go terribly wrong in most cases with a knee or a hip operation. Like it doesn't feel great, but you know, you can be in the comfort of your own home and people like being at home. You know, people don't like being in hospital. I mean, there's, there's probably a rare few who do, but more often than not, people like being in the comfort of their own bed recovering. Um, and as long as you have the right setup to kind of really make sure that nothing is going terribly wrong and identifying things early, then why not, you know, move, move in that direction? I'm loving the idea of the traveling doctor, um, not because I think it's going to happen, but because it immediately makes me think, well, what's going to be in the in the doctor's bag? Um, what kind of, I'm trying to think of what kind of products will this uh, new product categories will this create? Um, it seems like Apple and Google are fairly convinced that there'll be a whole new physical product category to kind of tap into. Um, I'm just wondering what sort of physical devices do you guys use now? And if you could click your fingers, what kind of physical devices would come into being um, to help you in, in your work? So I've talked to a lot of device companies over the course of the past couple of years because we integrate with a portfolio of different devices. So anything ranging from fitness um, trackers, blood pressure cuffs, blood glucose monitors, weight scales, ECG tools. So a huge portfolio of different devices. Um, and I think the the difficulty is is that we kind of overcomplicate things almost. You know, I think I don't I don't know. You're going to sit down on your chair and something's going to up to you and your blood pressure. I, I I don't know whether we'll get there. What I do think that we'll get to is we'll get the core devices. You know, your phones and your kind of fitness trackers and that kind of stuff. Those are becoming more savvy. You know, you see kind of how the Apple Watch really now a health tool. You know, it's becoming a it's becoming a health measuring tool. So whether it's, you know, kind of looking at your heart rate or steps as it has done to date, or whether it's looking at the future at your blood glucose or your blood pressure, I think people are more likely to use a tool if it has everything in one. The other part is I see a huge kind of growth in terms of the sensitivity of the phone, but also kind of what we can do with digital data. One of the things, you know, is that newer versions of iPhone have a PPG sensor on the smartphone camera. That PPG sensor means that you can now collect heart rate using a smartphone camera. So all you do is you put your kind of finger on your smartphone camera, the flash turns on, and over a period of time it measures your heart rate, and it can also measure your heart rate variability. That is something that three years ago you could only really do using, it was new on the Apple Watch, it was the thing you could do on Apple Watch, um, and you could use it using, you know, the archaic technologies that we were previously using. Um, I see kind of technologies like that becoming more and more um, relevant. I've seen companies that claim that they can track temperature using just your smartphone camera. So you just, you know, you put it on a selfie almost and it tracks your temperature, it tracks your heart rate, it tracks a variety of different things. And I think that that's actually a reality of, you know, what things could look like in the future. I started this episode thinking about the future of healthcare in the home as being filled with smart tiles in your bathroom, measuring and tracking your weight and body mass on a daily basis. Maybe cameras in your mirror scanning your iris for potential neurological diseases while you brush your teeth. But this idea of the futuristic home as an integrated healthcare solution is perhaps a little far off. As Alex and Clayton point out, Healthcare at home is much more about leveraging and connecting the technologies we already have around us that we intuitively know how to use and realizing their potential to collect effective data for clinicians to access. The big leaps will come from solving systemic problems like enabling the safe and controlled sharing of data between electronic health records. 
It will come from solving practical connectivity issues and taking a human-centered approach to designing healthcare experiences that patients find acceptable and can use long-term. Solutions that are reliable and don't end up dropping out or feeling like they're constantly spying on us, demanding data. It's about designing and planning for better patient outcomes, not just chasing the latest IoT opportunity. On that note, it's time to end. Thanks so much to both our guests, Alex and Clayton, and thanks to you for listening. We'll be back next week for our final episode of the series. We'll be sitting down with some TTP experts in a roundtable about pain, where it comes from, how we can measure it, and whether we might one day be living in a pain-free world. We'll see you then. Invent Health is a podcast from TTP. It's hosted and written by me, Matt Millington, design and strategy consultant at TTP. It was written and produced by Harry Stott. The executive producers were Abby Williams and Sam Zaccarino from TTP and Ollie Judge from Adrift Entertainment.